Welcome to my podcast. My name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you so much for tuning in and uh, welcome. Today's episode is going to be about stress. Again, <laughs> another episode on stress. Um, I'm doing this because a lot of the things we talk about in these podcasts relate to things that I do in my practice. And, and when I try and get to the cause for my patients, when I try and understand what are the underpinnings for their symptoms, where did this come from, what's wrong, that's where I come up with this material sometimes, I mean, most of the time. You may really think about it. You go to your doctor's office and you present with a symptom as a physician, and I am a physician, and I have the ability to perform surgery and write prescriptions, and I'm going to say those things are important, critical, actually. What makes a doctor special to me and what I love about my work and what I think shines through in any physician as being a good physician is when we try and figure out what's really wrong. What's the cause? There's this um, movie that's out that I want to see, and I, and I don't know if it's specifically who, but it's, um, I, I think it's um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter did it with her mom, Maria Shriver, and, and um, I forgot her name. I'll look this up. But it's, it's about how benzodiazepines have been so heavily prescribed to women for anxiety. We're hypermedicating these women. To, to just kind of suppress it. Suppress, let me step back. When someone presents to clinic with anxiety, as a physician, you've got to stabilize them. And sometimes their anxiety is so great, you've got to prescribe strong medications. And that would be like the benzodiazepine class. And that's okay. And I should do that. And I've done it. And I'm okay with that. The thing is, is there's been a population of women who've been put on this Long term, when the woman presents a clinic with anxiety, it's called uh, the Netflix documentary. It's called "Take Your Pills, Xanax." Anxiety is an alarm. It's saying something is wrong to our brains and bodies. We're not ever taking a break. We're basically working all the time. When I'm having an anxiety attack, the first thing I do is I feel hot and pressure. The first time I took Xanax, I said, oh, I understand why people get addicted to this. I could think clearly. It made me feel like a better version of myself. A pill is a really simple solution that we have created this whole infrastructure to promote. We live in this age of overprescribing and oversupply, which means you're more likely to try it and more likely to get addicted to it. Knowing what I know now, I would never have taken that first prescription. There's this huge Xanax crisis. Now we're seeing younger and younger age groups not only being prescribed benzodiazepines, but being kept on them. Xanax works more quickly than most other benzodiazepines and wears off more quickly. So you get into that dysphoric, wanting, craving state. And those patients who are dependent upon the medication, they just can't function without them. That's the nature of tolerance and withdrawal. We are stuck in this old story, fixing something that's broken instead of building resilience against it. What's going to get you on the other side of the anxiety is to actually go through it. There is something awfully shaming for someone to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just do it if you can't. 
learning how to cope with the world is a journey. It's something that you learn to do over time. Yeah, Take Your Pills to Xanax. It's on Netflix as a documentary. And it's Maria Shriver and her daughter, Christina Schwarzenegger, did this. Yeah. I want to see that because when I read the description of it, it sounds exactly like what I'm seeing, what I believe. So if you see it, I'm going to see it too. We're all, we'll all see it together. Let's see it. Let's do that. Um, when you come to picture someone coming into you and they have these symptoms of anxiety, I could stop their anxiety symptoms right away with a benzo. Got it. Valium. Oh, you could do it. Pretty high dosing. You can, you won't feel anything. Did that help them? Short term, yes, because those symptoms of anxiety are real, and they and they can cause harm. So you need to. But this is a person in need. Do I keep them in limbo with that strong benzodiazepine? Do I keep them in limbo for the rest of their lives? It's like you can, as a doctor, just say that's enough from you and shut them down and put them in a corner and leave them on that medicine, and that's it. Enough. When you come in, I know that a person in anxiety doesn't always want to address the source of their anxiety because that's what anxiety is. You don't want to deal with something because it's pretty significant, it's pretty traumatic. There's a lot to anxiety. And I promise you I'll do more episodes on it. Right now, I'm literally just doing it on stress. I was using this example. No one wants to deal with the source. And if you did, you wouldn't need to see me, you know? But we have to. And the role of the physician is to help you find the source of anxiety. Sometimes it's biological and it's hormones. And that's where I do my best work. And I love that work. I love my work with that. But what happens when I've cleared the field and everything is in balance and they still have symptoms? Then the hard work comes in of therapy and, and not just any therapy. It's important to get therapy that works. You know, Therapy is tricky because you'll prescribe it and the person will go and if it's not the right fit, you know, a therapist could be great for this person but not for that person. It's such individual, there's so many individual components to it. There's so much specificity to the individual and the therapist. And there's also the willingness and preparedness of the person to go to therapy. I went off on a long tangent with this. Sorry. My point is, is that as a doctor, it is so important that I do everything in my power to find out the source, the cause for pathology in front of me because it is bad work on my part to just, here's your medicine, shut you up and put you in a corner and that's you. I got you shut down on that benzo or that antidepressant or that steroid or that birth control. You don't need that. I mean, you need to be stabilized, yes, and you need to be cared about, yes, but you don't need to be put on a medicine forever and put on a shelf and forgotten about. You deserve 100% of the brain. I've said this before, and I, and I watch my podcast, and I want to make sure I always do a good job sending this message, and, and I'm going to keep repeating it. When you're in the room with a doctor, it is the role of the physician, it's my role as the doctor in the room to bend 100% of this brain around the problem and do everything in my power to help. And if it's beyond me, it is for me to find and help you find the person that will help. 
That's the role of the physician, not to put you on a shelf, shut you down with a medicine, okay? So this podcast, talking about stress again, is me reapproaching something that is so important and overlooked. And I know that through education, I know that through these podcasts, I know this. Because I've done this, I do this clinically with my patients. The more I spend time educating my patients about the cause of what's going on, the better they are at addressing it and managing it and finding cure with me. I had that yesterday with someone. I just, and I love doing this. I've had patients for years and I'll sit down with them and I'll go through their labs for the past 10 years and I'll show them this was the time then your blood sugar was out of range because you were doing these things with your diet. Look at how you fixed it by our next appointment. Or over here, this is when your cholesterol was high because you weren't eating enough fiber. And look how you fixed it. It is so nice to go back and show them that when I educate them on the cause of the disorder, what's going on, that we're able to fix it and I can show them, you did it, you did it. So that positive feedback for those patients is so important, but also educating them on what's going on is, is also equally important. So again, back to stress, we're talking about stress. Some of us wear stress like a badge. That's something we're culturally put to, I think. Like, it's just like, we wear it like a badge, how hard we work and, you know, how much stress we're under. And uh, it's not healthy. You know, it really isn't stress, you know, um, stress, traumatic experiences, all these things, um, all this leads to increased risk for cardiometabolic disorders. You see issues, higher risk factors for heart attacks, higher risk factors for diabetes, higher risk factors for just everything from depression, anxiety, all these things, stress, unregulated and, and traumatic stress is, is just very dangerous. You know, when, when, um, children have it. At least a long-term poor outcomes for lifetime risk factors for diabetes and lifetime lifetime risk factors for for cardiovascular disease. Moms have it when they're pregnant. High risk factors for the baby being born uh, um, with uh, blood sugar dysregulation, so the baby will be born a little bit bigger than they should be because the mom had blood blood sugar dysregulation during pregnancy due to stress. The baby has a higher long-term risk factor for developing diabetes earlier in life. These are real things. And again, this will be in the citations that will be listed in the description of the video. And then what I said earlier about stress being like, you know, the toxic and, you know, poor stress, bad stress, dysregulated stress. There's a flip side to this. You know, stress is not always bad. Stress is good. When you go to the gym to work out, that's stressing your body. And you want to stress your body because by stressing your body, you train it to rebuild, to be stronger. So when you stress the muscle from lifting a weight over and over again, and then you give it a day of rest, rest that's when the muscle comes back stronger when you stress your mind to learn something new you know and i've said this before in podcasts i said i'm repeating i know i'm repeating myself but some things you need to repeat so so by relearning things by learning things excuse me uh, uh that is going to that stress of learning something studying something that stress on the brain forces your brain to recall it and have better recall but that overall stress on the brain when you have the the learning and then the rest the learning then the rest your brain gets stronger and better. Now, this is one of the interesting things I, I mentioned in the previous podcast about uh, how to prevent Alzheimer's. One of the ways of preventing cognitive decline is with thyroid. Um, I mentioned there's a book about the end of Alzheimer's. In there, he talks a lot about learning new skills, about getting your brain to learn new things. And the idea is that that stress on you from learning something like learning a musical instrument or learning a new language, these stressors on the brain with, with recovery help the brain work better. And that's been shown to arrest the progression of Alzheimer's. And that's true. And there's plenty of research on that. 
But again, I keep saying the stress, but you remember, you hear me? I keep talking about recovery. If you have unregulated stress, meaning you're just stressed all the time, you're living in a home that's toxic with violence or anger, um, you're living in poverty, you're living in around pollution, people live next to highways, poor air quality, um, poor water quality, all these things are stressors. You know, like I said, it doesn't have to be just emotional stress of being, you know, in a violent environment or working with with a toxic workplace where you're everyone's yelling all the time and there's no security. You know, it could be, you know, water quality, it could be air quality, you know, there's gender discrimination, there's race discrimination. These things are also constant stressors, nonstop, dysregulated, and there's an impact. It's when you get rest from these stressors that your body's able to compensate for it and grow from it. There's three ways of looking at stress. There's a positive stress. We have the stressor, then you have the recovery, and you have the personal growth. Okay, that's balanced. That's, again, like going to the gym. You work out, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, you're recovering and let your body get stronger from it. It's like you're working Monday through Friday, eight hours a day, but you have your lunch and you have your breaks because those things help, and then you have your weekend off. These are the things that help that stress become positive. It's when you're working 60 hours a week without taking a lunch. It's when you're exercising all the time, constantly, that stress becomes out of balance. So the more your stress increases and the less you're able to compensate for it with rest and recovery and self-care, the more it inches over here to becoming imbalanced. So you have you know, the positive stress, you have tolerable stress where you're like, okay, I have a big project coming up so I'm working a little bit more than normal or you know, there's a lifestyle change or something's happening. So okay, we're a little bit out of balance here but you can compensate for it a little bit so it's not too bad. You can do it for a little while and then there's the really bad, the toxic stress where it's just so far over. Your stress is so high and your ability to compensate for it is so low. It's just chronic. That's when there's those health problems that creep in. Both acute and chronic stress result in a dysregulation of something called the diurnal rhythm of your cortisol secretion. And when I posted this earlier about stress on a previous podcast, there's several of you made comments on the Instagram page regarding, you know, where should cortisol be and why is this that? So I made this video to that specifically and how you could treat this. It's so hard to get this treated in a clinic. It's hard to find a physician to run these labs. There are ways I'm going to talk about today how to address that. But this came out of that video and out of your comments on Instagram. I want you to know that. I read them. I still read them. I read them. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to comment on these things. It matters to me and I do read it. So your cortisol starts high in the morning when you wake up. You have the initial spike that happens when you first wake up. That's the awakening surge of cortisol. Uh, then it drops more slowly and then you know reaches its low level right by bedtime. So you should have that high and then that drop off in the evening. We mentioned this in the previous podcast, the highest nine, high, high and low to it. That's a good rhythm. We want that rhythm. Stress dysregulates it and moves it around a little bit. Originally, when they did research with this, and this is important, originally, you know, up until the 1990s, they thought that that rhythm was a nuisance, just an irregularity that was un, un, unimportant and, and it didn't matter. And why I'm saying that is because now when you go to your doctors and they say it doesn't matter, cortisol rhythm doesn't matter, that the, the morning cortisol is everything, or you just run a cortisol any time of day, anything like that, they're coming from that mindset, and they haven't really been updated since the 1990s, early 1990s, like 1980s to 1992, I think, was when they started realizing there's more to it, you need to have that rhythm, okay? the It's called the 
this is important if you want to research yourself. And I know there's a few doctors that watch this. It's what I'm going to talk more about today that's the important part of this. is called the diurnal cortisol slope. The diurnal cortisol slope. And that's the high to low drop, that rhythm that goes throughout the day. Okay, that's the slope that's indicating how healthy the patient is and how well they're adapting to stress. If it flattens because they're under chronic stress and their cortisol is going to be pretty much the same throughout the day or only a little bit higher in the morning and not that low in the at evening, or if it's all of it low all day long like that, which is the worst, that flattened slope is where we have the health crisis. Okay, so when I run cortisol on my patients in the morning, I'm getting the first image about how much cortisol they're putting out. That gives me a first sight of this. And if it looks irregular, I will run something called cortisol times four. And I use that through a lab, uh, it's just a basic lab. We use LabCorp for that one. And, and we run their cortisol four times during the day. And it's a saliva test. And it's valid and it's covered by insurance. You know, I think SnorQuest does it too. But I, I use LabCorp. That's my favorite. And insurance covers it. So again, it's not boutique labs. And there are boutique labs that offer this out there. And, and they're not millions of dollars. I think it's like $100, maybe. That's what I charge for it. So I don't know if it's more than that in other places. But uh, you shouldn't expect to spend that much money on it if you're paying out of pocket. But if you're doing it yourself, or you know, if you're doing it through your doctors and they're doing it through insurance, that is one of the ones that's covered. And then we do your cortisol times four. So we test in the morning, we test it a little bit later in mid-morning, afternoon, and then evening. We should see that rhythm with it. And if you don't see the rhythm, we know there's a flattening of the slope. We need to understand where their stress is happening. We want to help diagnose that because when you have the flatter slope, the flatter that slope is, the more you're going to have uh, um, weaker immune function, you're going to have more body fat, you're going to have less muscle mass, uh, poor memory, you're going to see more depression and more fatigue with those people with that flattened slope, okay? There's a lot of nerdy stuff in here. I promise you it's going to get more exciting shortly because that's the thing. How is this helpful to you? Think about this. You're, I, I just did like this whole description trying to make this fit into a patient's mindset and, and it would be ter terrible for me to do that without giving you a way to treat it or manage it. Many of you don't have uh, medical supervision that will help you do this. I know that. Some of you do, so it's good. And you want to say, okay, you go to your doctor, I'm under stress, I want you to do my cortisol testing, and I would like you to prefer you to test my cortisol flow, like throughout the day, the cortisol times four. You want that rhythm. You want to have that done. For those of you who can't do that, you know, what do you do? How can you manage that? You know, there are ways of doing that, you know, um, something called heart rate variability. Okay. And a lot of you have access to it without even knowing it. Anybody who has an Apple watch or an aura ring or uh, the whoop bracelets, you know, or even your phone can have an app called HRV testing. And what it is, we're testing heart rate variability. And so step back. What is stress? How does that happen? When you look at something that's stressful, you perceive a stressor in front of you, like you have a deadline happening or you have a, something happening at work or, or anything like that that could cause stress. You look at the stressor, your brain interprets it as a stressor, your, your amygdala says this is something serious and you're going to release more epinephrine, norepinephrine, you're going to release more catecholamines, right? We talked about that previously about depression. So that's the thing we're talking about. So those catecholamine levels start to rise up. When the catecholamine levels start to come up, adrenaline starts to come up, it sends a signal to your adrenal gland to make more cortisol. So your adrenal gland starts surging with cortisol, trying to make more, make more, make more. 
So that's that initial response to stress. And over time, your 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 adrenals, your excuse me, your, your catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine, keep pushing on the adrenal gland. It does its best, but over time it just becomes depleted. It becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. So you start having lower and lower cortisol. Then over time you have lesser and lesser and lesser catecholamines. You have lesser and lesser uh, adrenaline because you keep firing the engines too hard. Heart rate variability is important here because when you fire adrenaline, your catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine, affect heart rate. You know that. When you're stressed, your heart rate goes faster. Your heart rate goes faster. But another sneaky thing happening in the background that you didn't know, the variability, the time between beats changes. When you're relaxed, like what I am right now, relaxed, my heart rate variability is a little high. What's happening is my heartbeat is beating at its normal rate, probably like 72 beats per minute right now or something. But between each beat, there's a little bit of extra time and less time. It's this beat, beat, but this second beat is a little more time. There's a variable in there. The more variability, the more relaxed I am. The less adrenaline through my body right now, the more at rest I am. The minute that I perceive something, like my dog chewing on my shoe because he's teething, <laughs> my heart variability is going to go a little different. It's going to become less. What happens is my adrenaline starts firing, my heart rate speeds up, but it becomes more rigid the timing between beats. So now my heart rate variability is going to be less and I'm going to be under stress. My watch measures that. Apple Watch measures it. Whoop. All these tools, Aura Ring, all these different tools you can have. Or just take your finger and put it on your phone and you put over the, 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 the camera and there's an app. And you hold it there and it'll measure your heart rate variability that way too. The one you wear that's on constant is a little bit better. How this helps you. That I hate, I, when I tell a patient I want to start monitoring their heart rate variability, I was like, okay, use your watch or your, your whatever. And sometimes people buy an Aura Ring, you know, and uh, uh, I feel like I'm plugging product again. You should send me like a flowers or something, or gift basket of fruit. <laughs> so, so when you start monitoring it, it's going to be unnerving. You realize how much of your day you spend in stress. And then you realize when you sleep, you're not getting nearly as restorative sleep as you should be getting. And it can be such an off-putting thing. There have been times I've taken my watch off and just I didn't throw it, but I'm like, I'm not wearing this. Because I, I don't want to know how bad I'm being to my body right now because of the stress I'm experiencing in life. Because I'm human like you too. You know, I have a lot of stress in my life too. So how this is helpful is I can monitor my catecholamine release, my adrenaline release, and the impact it's having on my heart rate. And I could see whether I'm giving myself enough recovery time relative to my stressors. If you're spending too much of your day in stress, so say your stress score is like, and every different app, uh, watch, Apple Watch, or they all have a different method of, of giving you if you're too high or no, the different scoring system you have. Fine. Let's say zero to 100% stress, okay? If you're coming back, your daily stress score is like, you know, 50. That's pretty high on a Garmin watch. Um, say your stress levels from the heart rate variability are high. You want to start figuring out how you can lower it. What are the tools you can do? And that's what I want to talk about today too. How you can help lowering or lowering your stress, which would be increasing heart rate variability, how you can lower your stress and get your adrenals to calm down a little bit is we're doing something called box breathing. Um, I went to a Brene Brown workshop last week. It was really good. Uh, 
was like one of those, it was on Rising Strong. It was really good. But she was talking about how you do box breathing, and she called it tactical breathing, which I thought was kind of funny. But it's because she was talking about how the military do this too. The military will do this. Um, that's what she said. So, But I, I know people in the military, I've never asked them this. I should ask them. I have a few patients. So anyway, um, what is box breathing? You inhale for four seconds. So one, two, three, four. Hold your breath for one, two, three, four. Exhale, one, two, three, four. Inhale, one, two, three, four. So you do this box breathing. Four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, four seconds hold. You do it for like 10 minutes. And it sounds so hippie. <laughs> it does. You should watch when you do it. You'll see it improve it. So that is free. It's just you and you and you can use your your little your phone and your app if you want to do it or you just get one of these guys. These guys are better, I promise you. It's it's I'm, I hate to spend your money, but I'm gonna tell you I think that's it's a good investment if you have chronic stress. Once you're able to do that, you can see the box breathing does work. What else works? Laughter. Laughter. I remember in med school in a cardiovascular course I was taking um um the professor talked about movies, funny movies, and how people when they laugh more have better outcomes and they're healthier and helps their heart. And he kept explaining, but he didn't have the science back then. He was just saying, anecdotally, we know by watching these movies, it does this for your heart. It makes you better. And you just need to laugh. And there is more and more science now behind that. Again, look in my citations for the, in the description about how laughter improves the release of epinephrine, norepinephrine, and allows the adrenals to recover and helps re-improve that diurnal rhythm we're talking about. It removes the flattening of the curve and gets it back to a nice morning curve, high and low in the evening. Laughter is really important for that. Another thing, um, when I'm desperate, I'll use a beta blocker. You know, I'll use propranolol, a metropolol. If I have a patient coming in and their stress levels are like 80, 70, you know, and their heart variability is high and their cortisol levels are just showing me it's a very flat curve and, and, and they're constantly under stress, they're not sleeping well. I will use a beta blocker in those cases because that has been shown also to improve heart rate variability and helps with that slope. I was supposed to get in a more relaxed state. A beta blocker is not Xanax, not addictive. It doesn't do that. Beta blocker is a cardiovascular drug, so you have to monitor several things when you're giving it to people. You have to, it affects heart rate uh, uh, overall, so if you have a slow heart rate, this is not the best thing for you. There's different ways to use this medication, but I just want to let you know there are ways that I can medicate it without putting you on a shelf and shutting you down and walking you away and be like, That's, you're just on Xanax now. So we can use this to help reestablish that sleep cycle with them. There's good ways of using that. Another one, fasting. <laughs> fasting fasting so hot right now for weight loss is true but fasting also when it comes to heart rate variability and the way your body adapts to stress also helps and 16 hour fasts are a good way of doing it 16 hour fast means you stop eating at like say 8 p.m and you don't eat again until noon and so during those 16 hours you want to be just doing water and letting your body kind of go through this detox cycle and and there's again look at my citations I'll, I'll list a few things regarding that um some of you trying to fast 16 hours right away will be stressful. Don't, don't start fasting at 16 right away. First measure how long you can fast and then slowly increase it by a half hour every few days until you get a good 16-hour fast in without it stressing you out. You can train your body to fast 16 hours. You can do it. It takes time. If you have headaches, you have dysglycemia, lightheadedness, dial it back until your body can tolerate it, then slowly increase it again. If it still doesn't do it, Come see me, come see me, go see a physician, someone. 
because there's something maybe going on with that insulin balance with you. But still, fasting, inexpensive, just like box breathing, just like laughter. And beta blockers are also remarkably inexpensive. Okay? So these are not million-dollar therapies we're talking about here. What also doesn't help with stress? You know, what, what can you do that would be harmful? A lot of people think that drinking alcohol is great for stress. And it feels good to drink alcohol. I know that. You know, it's just when people drink alcohol, I know what they're doing it for. Alcohol will bind to the GABA receptor, similar to Xanax, okay? It binds that receptor. That's why when you drink, you don't feel that anxious. It's one of the ways it, it's people like to drink is to relieve their anxiety. Um, the problem with alcohol, though, is that long-term, it is not good for the heart. It's not good for catecholamines. It's not good for stress. Long-term, you're going to see your heart not responding well to it with heart rate variability. You're going to see more adrenaline in dysregulation. The rhythm will be flattened. And again, that's why people who drink alcohol, one of the contributing factors... One of the contributing factors to to heart disease is drinking alcohol. You always see it's sort of weird about alcohol with stress and, and heart disease. They say, oh, a glass of wine is good for your heart. What they're talking about there is not, let's, let's take wine away for a minute. What they're talking about there is that anything that can help re-regulate your stress a little bit and modulate your stress, like in this case, maybe just how alcohol binds to that GABA receptor and reduce your stress a little bit, reduce the adrenaline, as I mentioned earlier, and have that impact your cortisol and have everything calm down. Anything that'll do that a little bit in the beginning is good. The problem is, is if you drink alcohol, like more than one glass every few days, but even alcohol is not even a great option, in my opinion, long-term. It's just not a good option. But still, in the beginning, it has that positive effect, but long-term, it doesn't. It loses the benefit because it's going to cause a, more of a dysregulation with your adrenaline. It's going to cause more of a dysregulation with your cortisol. And again, heart attack disease risk factors for alcohol is high. You know That's why you have an irregular with people like, it's good for you, it's not good for you. It has a mixed thing. It's only good for you in a very small component of it in the very beginning. But long term, it definitely does not. Another thing, video games. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it because it doesn't get talked about enough. And we always talk about it in the corner. You know, so many people game. One of the doctors I work with, she was a gamer, and I didn't know that. Because I grew up in the time where only guys gamed, you know. But women game too, you know. And it is one of those things people do to to get out of their stress. Because they feel better when they do it. They feel very, just they're just um, unplugged from everything, right? And so is that a good thing or a bad thing for stress? I will say this. It's not good for stress. I wish it was. I wish it was. But the, if you wear your wear your watch, play a video game, see what your watch tells you. Wear your aura ring, whatever you're going to do, wear it and see what happens. It it does not. I wish it did because that's a fun thing to do. Um, but it's it does not help with your cortisol, and it does not help with the way your body fires adrenaline. It just doesn't. It feels good to do because it's going to hit serotonin pathways, it's going to hit dopamine pathways. But when it comes to managing stress, the impact of cortisol on your health, not a good thing, okay? Um, TV, binging TV, glow and flow, relaxing on TV, that also is tricky because if you're watching a comedy, awesome. Watching a crime documentary or crime shows, not good. Watching politics is definitely not good. <laughs> Don't watch politics. Don't watch news. Just just. Stop watching news because that is so not good for you. Um, and how you can verify, watch your heart rate monitor. Look at the heart rate variability. 
The time between beats will tell you the truth. Not don't just listen to me. Never just listen to me ever, okay? But think about what I say and maybe look into it yourself and see what you think, you know? One more thing I want to bring up that's kind of big because I'm in Arizona and I know there's a lot of states in the country in America that had this and I don't know what it's like in other countries. Cannabis. Cannabis is becoming really big here in the states um, because it's being legalized in several different um, areas. And the thing about cannabis is I have a mixed feelings about it. I have very mixed feelings about it. I like that over like um, some some things we use for sleep for people are not good at all. Zolpidem, uh, Ambien, is a dangerous medication to use and your doctor should use it um, carefully. And uh, you know the risks of using long-term um, medications such as such as you know Ambien and Zolpidem rather is that it will increase risk for Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive decline. You're not getting true restorative sleep. There's a lot of negative things about it. So when a doctor in Arizona prescribes medical marijuana for sleep, that is a much better option and we're good with that. The thing is, is when the person says, you know, I'm just going to come home, I have a stressful day, I'm just going to, you know, get high, it feels good. like alcohol. It will feel good. You'll be happy you did it for that sense maybe. You will get the dopamine and maybe some serotonin there. I don't know. But when it comes to heart rate variability, it's dicey. The research is still limited on it, but what I'm seeing in the research is that it's not great for stress when it comes to cortisol and uh, um, the way you fire adrenaline. So again, if you are in an area where marijuana is legal and you want to use that for stress release, I would advise you, you know, for balancing cortisol and, and managing stress like that, I'd advise you to use your watch or your ring or your phone, whatever it is, and check out your heart rate variability because that will let you know for sure whether it's actually helping you restore and get well. The key takeaways here is this. Stress, when it's unregulated and chronic without rest, is going to impact your health negatively. It primarily heart issues uh, and, and and diabetes and, and you know, anxiety and weight gain and all these things. Stress is unregulated long-term, not good for you, okay? Getting into a doctor's office where they're gonna test your cortisol throughout the day and see what's going on with you and really sit down and work it through with you, not easy, not easy. Um, how can you take it in your own hands? Using some heart rate variability, monitor your levels of stress, see where your score is. Again, on my Garmin watch, they do zero to 100, if I see my daily stress seeing high, I want to get it lower. So I want to do my best to lower it and, and, and look at throughout my day and see where I can improve it. And things like box breathing, things like watching comedies, things like uh, um, fasting, these are helpful things. And exercise too. I forgot to bring up exercise. Exercise is also very helpful. Proof is in the testing and in the improvement of your, your stress metrics on this. And if you're using your physician with this, you'll see your labs improve as well. I hope this is helpful. This is important to me to do this and do it well. So um, if you have any comments or questions or things I didn't go over with this, please, you know, comment below because this matters to me. You know, it's uh, I'm not doing this because I just want to put out material. I, I want to be of service. It is so important to me that when I do this, it's right because it doesn't mean anything for me to say these things and do this podcast if I'm not being helpful. Seriously.
What's the point of doing this if it's not being helpful? So if this was good or not good, let me know. If there's something that makes sense, let me know. I want it to make sense. I want it to be clear. I want it to be helpful. So thank you for tuning in. And please like, share, and subscribe. And I will see you next time.